0: Please take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, as we are continuing an exposition of the book of Luke that we began well over a month ago. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. Please begin reading with me there. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let us pray together. Father God, your word is rich and true. And the whole entirety of your Bible, Lord, points us to Christ. It is He that Moses and the prophets looked forward to, Lord. And it is He who has come to bring redemption. And it is He that we have come to worship this very day. Oh Lord, let our minds and hearts be fixed now on Jesus. Let us not be distracted by the cares, and trials, the needs of this time. Let us even now, even now, Lord, be guided by your spirit and truth. That we may grow in our faith, Lord, that we may be comforted and consoled in our trials. That we may be encouraged, Father God, as we seek to live in obedience, Lord, to you out of love and for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our savior. Amen. You know, brothers and sisters, when we think about the time into which Jesus was born, it was a time of incredible religious pluralism and rank paganism. In fact, it bears many similarities to the environment that we live in today. The Roman, the North African, the Middle Eastern nations during the time of Jesus' birth practiced numerous variations of polytheistic paganism. There were so many gods, there were so many different practices ranging from rank hedonism to extreme deprivation that people could literally pick whatever they wanted. That's very similar today. you know. While here in the United States, generally monotheistic uh, Christianity is still the, the larger umbrella that most people claim, we know well that under that umbrella, people's variations and versions of who they believe God to be, of who they believe Jesus to be, are very corrupted. And oftentimes, not even according to the Scriptures. And we as the church in some ways are called to be like Israel during the time of Christ, fervently holding to the one true God. That's what it was like when Jesus was born. Right in the middle of all those rampantly pagan nations, there was this one little nation of people that were monotheistic Jews. And yet, even within their country, even within their religion, there was was not a, a monolithic faith You had the Sadducees. They were the more liberally minded Jews who were most concerned about maintaining power under Roman occupation. You had the Sadducees and then the Pharisees. The Pharisees' chief concern was preserving and protecting the Jewish faith. They took a more literal interpretation of the scriptures, which contributed to them being fervent legalists. Then you had the Zealots. They were extreme Jewish nationalists and political revolutionaries who advocated the violent overthrow of Roman occupation through insurrection. And then you had the Essenes, whose extreme views of ritual purity led them to live as isolated aesthetics in small communities in the Israelite wilderness. But the fifth group is the one that we're most concerned with this morning. And that is the true godly remnant in Israel during this time. They are the ones we see the most in the narratives about the birth of Christ. People like Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist. We have Joseph and Mary, of course. We have the shepherds that we looked at last week. And then we have Simeon, who we'll look at today, and Anna, who we will look at next week. These are Jews who truly sought to obey God's law, believing in Him, having a heart of faith, responding to His leadership, and looking for the coming of the Messiah. Indeed, they kept the faith because they were looking towards God's Messiah. And what we see come now on the open stage in Israel, even as we undertake our text this morning, is the fulfillment of all that God had promised throughout the history of Israel. And we're going to see the significance of our Savior this morning being born under the law. So let's consider that first. I have three points this morning. That is my first. We want to see first the author of the law born under the law. Think about that with me. The author of the law born under the law. We pick up with verse 21 and we see at the end of eight days, Jesus was circumcised according to the Jewish custom. He was named Jesus at his circumcision according to the Jewish custom. And then the time of purification came for them to take him up to the temple. In these first four verses, we see how Christ's fulfillment of the law began from the very time of his birth. Because his parents were faithful followers of God, they did exactly what the law prescribed them to do for their son. And their faithfulness to keep the law resulted in yet another godly witness to the salvation that God was bringing to the world through Jesus Christ. Now to understand the background of what's happening here, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 17. Remember that in Genesis 17, God established the sign of circumcision for Abraham and his descendants. And he told them that that circumcision should be done to all the male children on the eighth day. Now, what was the significance of circumcision? Well, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant that represented the need for spiritual cleansing from sin and depravity into which every successive generation since Adam and Eve had been born. It was also a sign of faith whereby Abraham's descendants were looking forward to the birth of God's promised Savior. And so, though Jesus was the incarnate Savior who would remain sinless, it was still important for him to be circumcised in obedience to the law to fulfill all righteousness, just like he would later be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. It was tradition to name your son at the circumcision, and so Mary and Joseph obeyed God and named their son Jesus, just as the angel Gabriel had instructed Now, according to Leviticus 12, 1 through 5, a woman was considered ceremonially unclean for seven days after her birth because there was still an issue of blood. Then after the circumcision of her son, a woman had to wait another 33 days to complete her time of purification. So after those additional 33 days, when Mary was considered ceremonially pure, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And this is where we get to see more overt reference to the whole idea of redemption. The reason that Luke gives us in verse 23 takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus chapter 13, Moses is instructing the people and he says, now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. And the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. And Moses goes on in Exodus 13 to explain why. If you remember, the very last plague that secured the release of Israel out of their, out of their slavery in Egypt was God killing all the firstborn in Egypt, all the firstborn sons in Egypt and all the firstborn of the livestock in Egypt. They were all obliterated by the death angel in that final plague. And therefore, the Lord was telling his people, also among you, the firstborn belong to me. You go further in Exodus 13, and God says, therefore, sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Now, if we step forward to Numbers 18, verses 15 through 16, we find out that the price of redeeming a male boy, a male baby, excuse me, was five shekels of silver paid to the temple. Since Mary and Joseph performed everything according to the law, they would have paid this price, even though it would have been a financial burden to them. We see in verse 24 that Mary also offered the required sacrifice for her own cleansing. In Leviticus 12.6, it specifies that a year-old lamb was to be offered for a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But it also says that if someone cannot afford a lamb, they could offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that is what Mary did because they were a family of very meager means. Now, given that historical and contextual understanding of everything, this is where I want us to pause, brothers and sisters, to really consider the incredible significance of everything we see taking place in these first four verses. I'm gonna give you seven different points here and and I'm gonna repeat them because I want us to understand them and I want us to hear them. And as you hear them, I want you to see how in these four verses we have an amazing interplay between law and gospel. And we've talked about this before, right? That the law of God is good and pure and righteous. It is His standard. But by the keeping of the law, no one will be saved. It takes the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ kept the law for us so that we could be forgiven and redeemed through a union with Him. So that we could be redeemed to be law keepers, joyful, delighted law keepers the way Jesus is. That's the truth of the gospel. And in Jesus, here being born under the law, we see the wonderful interplay of all these truths. He was born under the law in order to save us from condemnation under the law by giving us the gift of His righteousness. And so I want you to listen to these seven things that are taking place as Jesus is circumcised and as His parents bring Him to the temple to be dedicated. First of all, we do want to understand that his name given by the angel Gabriel was Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. So by Jesus being given the name Jesus, there's such significance in the fact that he is the incarnate Yahweh who is the salvation of men. Jesus, again, he bears the name Jesus. And there were others, we know biblically, there were others named Jesus during this period. It was not not a rare name. But yet in the person of Christ, we have Yahweh incarnate, who is the salvation of men. Secondly, this is another interesting truth. The Son of God who would ultimately circumcise the hearts of sinful men was himself circumcised in the flesh by sinful men In order to fulfill all righteousness. Think about that. The Son of God, who would ultimately circumcise the hearts of sinful men, was himself circumcised in the flesh by sinful men in order to fulfill all righteousness. Thirdly, he for whom the temple existed as the focal point of worship was now being brought into the temple in an act of worship. Think about that. The temple existed in the life of Israel as the focal point for the whole nation to worship the one true God. And now here we see the one true God incarnate being brought into the temple by his parents as an act of worship. Fourthly, and this flows directly from the third, Mary and Joseph came into God's temple and presented God the Son to God the Father as a righteous act of loving obedience, born out of their faith in the very one they held in their arms. Think about that. Mary and Joseph came into God's temple and presented God the Son to God the Father, and they didn't realize the significance of this, but that's what is happening They presented God the Son to God the Father as a righteous act of loving obedience born out of their faith in the very one they held in their arms. Number five. This is another one that's just amazing to stop and think about. Mary and Joseph came by faith to pay the required price of redemption for their infant son. But their infant son would one day pay the required price of redemption for them and for everyone else who would look to Him in faith. Think about that. Mary and Joseph came by faith to pay the required price of redemption for their infant son. Yet their infant son would one day pay the required price of redemption for them and for everyone else who would look to him in faith. Number six... In in Exodus, the Passover lamb was slaughtered so that the firstborn of Israel could be spared from death. And all the firstborn of Israel therefore became the possession of God. Now, God's own firstborn son was being presented before him as his possession. And his firstborn son would be the lamb of God slaughtered so that the world could be spared from death. Now God's own firstborn son was being presented before him as his possession and his firstborn son would be the lamb of God slaughtered so that the world could be spared from death. And then finally, number seven, think about this. Even as Mary offered the required sacrifice for her uncleanliness, she was holding in her arms God's final and perfect sacrifice for her uncleanliness. Think about that. Even as Mary offered the required sacrifice for her uncleanliness, she was holding in her arms God's final and perfect sacrifice for men's uncleanliness. So her son's once and for all sacrifice for sin would fulfill and bring to an end the very sacrificial system to which she was currently bound. Brothers and sisters, in all of these things, we see such a great sense of fulfillment. We see what Paul said in Galatians 4, 4-5, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus kept the law so that we could be justified in God's sight and reconciled to him and know and walk with him and have the promise of an eternity with him given to us again. And so when we think about these four verses, the wonder of God's providence and his redemptive purpose is amazingly revealed through the author of the law being born under the law. Now that brings us to Simeon, who was another one of the righteous remnant of Israel. And that's my second point. The second thing we see in this text is Simeon's proclamation of God's salvation. Simeon's proclamation of God's salvation. Look there with me at verse 25. Now there was in Jerusalem a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now look, look at the terms used to describe Simeon. His name, first of all, quite appropriately means... God has heard. He is further described as righteous, which meant that, like Abraham, he manifested the righteousness of God that was imputed to him by faith. Simeon was a man filled with God's Holy Spirit, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. That means he was looking for the Messiah, because God's anointed Messiah would be the one to bring God's peace and comfort and consolation to his people. And Simeon was granted a very unusual privilege by God. The Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would see God's Messiah sometime before he died. Now think about that, how that would have affected him. Think about a devout man of the Lord. He had been revealed this by the Holy Spirit. He got out of bed every single morning with a huge smile, saying to himself as he headed off to the temple, this may be the day that I get to see the Savior. Now, the text doesn't tell us anything more about Simeon, but many many archaeologists, many historians believe that Simeon could have possibly been one of the Levitical priests who served regularly in some capacity at the temple. He might have even served in a capacity where he received and blessed families who presented their children before the Lord. And so, verse 27, he came that particular day in the Spirit to the temple. And there were Joseph and Mary and their little baby boy to fulfill the law. And as someone who reverenced God and was so thoroughly submitted to God and submitted to the the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Simeon recognized the Christ child immediately. I mean, this baby is just roughly 40, 41 days old. And yet Simeon, looking down at this newborn infant, knew immediately that the Messiah was being presented this day. And what did he do? He took the child in his arms and he began to bless God. He began to worship. And look at what he said as he began to worship and bear witness to Christ. Here is Simeon now again, just as the shepherds before. Simeon is now one who begins to proclaim the gospel, who begins to proclaim the truth of salvation. And there are three different elements to what Simeon proclaimed that day in the courts. First of all, He praised God for fulfilling his promise. He said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Simeon, in other words, was saying, I could happily go to my grave in peace because the one who was promised to me by the spirit has now arrived and is being held in my very arms. God had kept his word, not only to Simeon, but God had also kept his word to Israel. Again, think of all the times in the Old Testament when God had promised that one who would be born in Israel, who would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, and this Messiah would uphold and establish the throne of David forevermore. This Messiah had been born now in Israel. And Simeon could not help but rejoice. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you rejoice in how God has kept his promises and how he does so even now? Even when you face times of trial, even when you struggle, even though we may go through seasons of doubt, we can trust and know that our God is always faithful. His faithfulness has been displayed and ultimately proclaimed fully through the coming of Jesus Christ through his full provision of salvation and all that Jesus did for us. If we are trusting in Christ this moment, then we are inheritors of that gospel promise. And in that, we rejoice like Simeon. Secondly, Simeon went on to proclaim the reality of God's salvation. For he said, For my eyes have seen your salvation Again, Jesus was not merely going to be a revolutionary rabbi or a nationalistic leader or an earthly king. He would be God's ultimate revelation of himself, the perfect and eternal prophet, priest, and king, who would secure the salvation of men, making atonement for our sin, reconciling us to God, saving us from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and securing our place as sons and daughters of the Most High. That is what Simeon acknowledged before the crowd in the temple that day. And then look at what he did in verses 31 and 32. This is the third part of what he did. He emphasized the extent of God's redemption. He says here, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Though Israel was just a tiny part Of the Roman Empire, the coming of Christ was not a covert operation. God was fulfilling his promise in plain sight. And this Jesus who had come was for the benefit of all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, this is what's most amazing if we stop and consider where Simeon is saying this. He is standing in the Jewish temple, the geographical focal point of their national identity. And the Jews, they believed that the Messiah would come and reestablish the glory of Israel over the Gentiles. But here was a devout man of God, possibly even one of their own priests, proclaiming that God's Messiah was coming for the benefit of Gentiles, as well as for God's people Israel. His salvation would be for everyone. And brothers and sisters, this is, again, such a, a poignant reminder to us. You know, I, I have the opportunity to, to, to be on, on a radio show, a local radio show, one morning a month, usually the fourth Thursday of the month. I was on that radio show again. It's, it's, a, it's a local talk show. And uh, it's, some of the topics we get to have been repetitive over these past couple of years, try as we might, to lead the discussion uh, they take callers to the show. And, and, and again, as I was on the radio show this past week, one of the things that the callers got into just a push and a push and an argument about is what color was Jesus? You know, there's such a focus on making sure that, ident- that Jesus identified as a, as, as a man of color. And particularly there were those who were arguing, saying, no, Jesus was African-American. He was black and we just need to realize this. And, and, this, and, and I kept going back and trying to get people to realize we're missing the point. We're getting wrapped up in a temporal discussion. Because at the end of the day, whether Jesus was, was brown or black, we know he wasn't white. He was born in, in a Middle Eastern nation. Whether Jesus was, was brown or black, he is the Savior and we followed his feet and we worship him. And at the end of the day, we also know that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those that are saved and there are those that are lost. That's it. There are sheep and there are goats. That is all. It doesn't matter about Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter slave or free. It doesn't matter male or female. None of those differences matter. The successive gospel writers tell us that. There are those who know the Lord by faith, through grace, and Jesus Christ alone. And there are those who do not. And that is the gospel that is held out to, held out to all of humanity. All of us are sinful and daily fall short of the glory of God. All of us are worthy only of God's condemnation and wrath because of our lawlessness, because of our rebellion against His rule. Every one of us are spiritual anarchists in our depravity. We want no authority of God over our lives. And yet though we despise the rule of God in our natural state, God sent His Son Jesus to die on a cross to redeem us from such sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, we are given right standing before a holy God as we believe in him, as we trust in him and all he did to secure our salvation. We are united with him. We are made heirs of the Most High God, redeemed out of our sinfulness made children of the Most High God, adopted by the Lord Himself and given the promise of eternity, brothers and sisters. That is the gospel. And it is for everyone. You may be within the sound of my voice this morning and you wonder if this salvation is for you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it is. It is. There is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you have yet to come to that place, even, even to our young people, I call to you again. You have the blessing of being raised by parents who would bring you to church, who would see that the gospel is set before you. I would challenge you, even in your own hearts, as you listen, though you have been raised to be familiar with these truths probably most of your life, I would ask you to even look into your own heart and see, are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? For apart from Him, you will know only Wrath and condemnation. But in Christ you will know. His grace and forgiveness. And peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This very day. Turn and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. That takes me to the final part of our text this morning. My third point. In our third point we see Simeon's warning. Of Christ's rejection. Simeon's warning of Christ's rejection. Look there with me at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So imagine here with me, brothers and sisters, this from the perspective of Joseph and Mary. They had both received personal direct revelation from an angel of the Lord at the time Christ was conceived. Mary had the identity of her child confirmed by Elizabeth when she went to visit her during the pregnancy. Then we have the announcement of the angels recounted to them in the testimony of the shepherds. And now at the time of their baby's dedication, They come to the temple of the Lord and have a devout, spirit-filled man of God proclaim the gospel in the hearing of everybody. So in light of all that, we can understand verse 33. Mary and Joseph were amazed again at how people were speaking of their child. They were amazed at God's purpose of redemption in the coming of the Messiah being proclaimed at each place they found themselves. We can imagine them just basking in the glow of this truth. But then, then Simeon turns his attention from blessing God and proclaiming Christ's purpose to focus his attention directly on Joseph and Mary. He blessed them and then he went on to speak what is the first negative note in Luke's gospel the first negative note in Luke's Gospel. He says, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Being a true man of God, Simeon no doubt knew the other prophecies concerning the suffering of Christ. He knew that the ministry of Christ would make it very clear that there was a line of division. Jesus later affirmed this himself in Matthew ten thirty four. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then Jesus went on in that same passage in Matthew 10 to talk about how his gospel would be a dividing line, even dividing family members against one another. You know, brothers and sisters, almost 2000 years, nothing later, nothing has changed. The the person of Christ and the message of salvation from sin is as controversial as it has ever been. More and more in our own culture, Christ and his gospel are signs to be opposed, mocked, ridiculed, silenced, and in some cases actively persecuted and eliminated. And this is where we need to realize what is really going on during this time, right? Last week, I made a particular note of the fact that when Jesus was born, the proclamation of his birth was not made by an angelic choir. It was made by an angelic army. Remember that? The proclamation of Christ's arrival was not made by an angelic choir. It was an angelic army. Jesus was coming in the world to go to war. We need to understand that. Jesus was coming into the world to go to war with the forces of evil and the darkness of sin. The beginning of His life was the start of a battle. And His army was announcing His victory even on the night of His birth. And so we should know and understand from this that wherever the Gospel is proclaimed, wherever Jesus is lifted up, the division between the sheep and the goats is going to be made clear. And Christ Christ himself told us that the world would hate us because it first hated him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, an aroma from death to death, but to the other, an aroma from life to life. So brothers and sisters, we are to remember that Jesus is a dividing line in this world and he has always meant to be so. That there is a battle in which we are all engaged, but we need not worry because Christ is the victor. Again, we we had our pastors meeting this past week as we do every month and one of our pastors shared that, you know, so many in our congregation, you, our church family, these are tense times. Right, I mean, we look at our nation and we look at the kind of things that are happening and, and we, we worry and we're concerned and we think about all that it's wrapped up and, and what is going on in our world and how things may turn out and, and, and what you know, cultural slide we may be on and where is it all going to end and what is the outcome of all these things and fear and trepidation about what we see happening in our own culture and society as things just further and further degrade and go into chaos. But we've got to remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus said you will have tribulation in this world, right? But take heart, I have overcome the world. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be be fretting about these things. Yes, there may be a time of great suffering and hardship coming. But who wins? Who's in control? Who, from the day of the birth of his birth, has already secured a victory? It is Jesus Christ. Our faith and our trust is in Him, and no one can thwart or, or, or undo the reign of Christ, our king. He is already established at the right hand of God. And in His time he will return to judge the quick and the dead. And fully and finally establish His righteous kingdom forevermore. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope. That is where our faith lies. Look to Him. Rest in Him. Verse 35, the the second thing Simeon says directly to Mary. He looks at Mary and he says, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This, of course, is an unmistakable reference to Christ's crucifixion. After the episode with Jesus at the temple when he was 12 years old, Joseph is not mentioned again, so he must have died at some point before Jesus began his public ministry. But Mary, we see her appear at many different points throughout the ministry of Christ, and her experience of her son's ministry culminates in an afternoon of agony as she stood at the foot of the cross and watched her son die a torturous death. Mary had the unique place of being the earthly mother of Jesus, but she was not alone in having her soul pierced by the suffering of her son. On that day, there were many who watched in horror and wept, and there were many who watched in scorn and mockery, but the thoughts of their hearts were clearly revealed. As Jesus said in John three nineteen and 20, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And brothers and sisters, that is the answer of how the true church is to manifest itself even in these days, even in our own times. By virtue of being in Christ, by virtue of being redeemed and united with him, by virtue of having his grace and his strength continually supplied to us, we have the privilege of being bearers of the light of his light. You see, the true church is wherever the people of Christ are united in fellowship under the truth of his word. The true church is composed of those who love Christ and who trust in him alone for forgiveness of sin and salvation unto eternal life. The true church is composed of those who are, in the words of Hebrews thirteen twelve, willing to suffer outside the gate with him, bearing his reproach. That is the true church. We are to be the true church in the midst of this time bearing out that light of Christ. For the truth of Christ reveals who is His and who is not. It reveals the hearts. Again, we live in a time where our faith is increasingly ridiculed. We're about to see our nation Go through a process. If you've been reading the news as I have, we're about to go see our nation go through a process wherever you stand on whether or not th- th- that we should have a new Supreme Court justice nominated. The fact of the matter is it's about to happen. And the fact of the matter is our world has made it clear that they object and intend to mock and tear apart every aspect of this person's faith. Because they don't want a Christian voice in leadership. We see a world in turmoil. We see a world where ideas of justice are twisted, where law and authority is being cast off in a spirit of anarchy. And in that same spirit, we live in a culture, our own culture, where they want nothing, nothing to do with the Gospel. Nothing to do with anyone who would stand for the name of Christ. And yet, brothers and sisters, even in the midst of that, We pause and recognize as the people of God that it is our privilege, our privilege to do just as our Savior did. To come and lift up the light of salvation and lay down our lives and die if need be so that Christ is glorified as all in all. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we, by the grace of Christ, by the love of Christ at work in us, live that same truth. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Jesus says, John 16.33, again, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Father God, your gospel is so rich. So true. And let us remember, Father God, that the gospel is not just a message. The gospel is a person. It is Jesus Christ our May all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.